It all started as a trip into town to sell his goods on February 11, 1909. Then came a request to a younger man to buy for him some whiskey. But since both were Amerindians and selling liquor to them was illegal, a soldier was asked to procure the potent potables instead. So that night, now good and inebriated, he mounted his horse to head home. En route, and nearly there I may add, he slipped from his horse, and he would spend all night in frigid, wet weather before he would be found. His family would try caring for him for three days as his cold got progressively worse, leading one scout to report on his condition, which led to him being taken to a nearby hospital. But by that time, it may have been too late. The cold had progressed to pneumonia, which even today can be too much for a man passing 80 years old. His family was called for, and his friends took shifts, watching him day and night. Finally, at 6.15 a.m., on February 17, 1909, he breathed his last breath. After the funeral, he would be buried in the Apache Cemetery at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Though the man, Geronimo, would meet that ignominious end, freezing nearly to death in a drunken stupor, the myth and legend of Geronimo was already well on its way toward the prominence in the public consciousness that it still enjoys today. Going from one to the other is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 115, The Apache Wars, Epilogue. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we were witness to the end of the Apache Wars, when Geronimo and, more importantly, Nietzsche, finally surrendered to General Nelson Miles on September 4th, 1886. As I mentioned, this was momentous, as it ended a conflict that had been going on nearly unstopped since Cochise had his run-in with Lieutenant George Bascom in January of 1861. So, for this week, we're going to button up the Apache Wars by following the Chiricahua as they were removed from Arizona, and then cover their ultimate fate, something that I kind of briefly hinted at back in episode 109. We will also follow up with the later career, so to speak, of Geronimo, who will get a lot of mileage out of trading on his famous name, despite still being a prisoner of war. And I'm not sure if I should apologize or not for how long this episode turned out to be. I kind of got away from myself trying to wrap up every loose end that was out there. But we were speaking of Geronimo, so let's start with him, Nietzsche, and their people, who had surrendered to Miles. Early on September 5th, these two main leaders and three other men were loaded onto Miles's ambulance to head toward Fort Bowie. And just for the record, an ambulance in this context has nothing to do with medical transportation, but it was a type of lightweight wagon that played an important role in westward migration during the gold rush. The name is thought to come from the Spanish ambular, an older word for to walk, or other older Spanish words for a wagon or a coach. 
And as a complete and utter tangent, Tubac Presidio State Historic Park has on permanent display a replica of an ambulance that is, in a word, pretty cool. So if you're down there, go check it out. Anyway, they arrived at Fort Bowie where the Chiricahua were disarmed. Like I said last week, a major milestone. And then they were all thrown into the calaboose. During this time, Miles assured his prisoners that their past deeds would be wiped out and everyone would start fresh and new. In reality, this would not happen, and the only reason that Geronimo and the others didn't wind up on a gallows was because the general basically skirted the issue. Because Miles wanted the Chiricahua out of the territory as soon as possible. However, President Grover Cleveland and General Philip Sheridan in Washington had other ideas. They had assumed that Geronimo and Nietzsche had surrendered unconditionally, and so they wanted the Apache turned over to a civilian court to stand trial for their raiding and murders. And you and I both know that any trial in Arizona would result in a unanimous, probably very quick, decision to hang the whole lot of them. So, Miles basically ignored a telegram on September 7th ordering him to hold Geronimo and Nietzsche at Fort Bowie for such a trial, and instead, he made ready for them to leave. And, by the way, we're going to see a lot of telegrams flying back and forth between Miles, Sheridan, General Howard in California, technically Miles' superior officer, and other officials about who suggested what when. Miles would ship the Chiricahua off, saying that he was only following up on a suggestion to send them to a more secure facility than Fort Bowie. And wouldn't you know it, there wasn't one in all of Arizona. However you want to slice it, on September 8th, all the remaining hostiles were disarmed at Fort Bowie. And then they, Geronimo and Nietzsche, were marched out toward the Bowie train station to be sent off. As they did so, the fort's band played Odd Lang Syne to commemorate the true end of the conflict that had engulfed Arizona for the past 25 years. At 2.55 p.m. on September 8, 1886, the train rattled out of the station, carrying Geronimo, Nietzsche, and their company away from Arizona for good. In one of those moments that history just loves so much, September 8th also marked the beginning of the end for the Chiricahua up at Fort Apache. Now, last week I left them, well, the men at least, rotting in a horse barn, saying I would get to their fate this week. So, here we are. On September 8th, Lieutenant Colonel James Wade marched out of Fort Apache for Holbrook, bringing along 383 Chiricahua men, women, and children. The women and children marched along, while the men had their hands tied to prevent escape, and then they were loaded into army wagons. This company reached Holbrook on September 12th, only to find that a mere two rail cars had been reserved for them to pack their possessions in. As you can imagine, most of those possessions wound up being left on the rail depot to be claimed by curious onlookers. And the same fate awaited the horses and cattle the Apache had brought with them, they were told that these would be sold and the proceeds sent to them, but somehow I doubt anyone saw a dime of that money. And most sources make special mention of the dogs, hundreds of faithful animals that accompanied the Apache to Holbrook, but who too would not go east with them. These are said to have barked and howled and then chased after the train as it lumbered forward. 
Historian Edwin R. Sweeney also adds the lovely detail that the train windows had been sealed shut to prevent escape, preventing ventilation and causing sweltering conditions. The soldiers had also set up chamber pots in private little salons for the Apache to relieve themselves, which were emptied every time the train stopped to take on water. However, with no ventilation, the stench of these ad hoc toilets just simply lingered. Now I want to briefly touch on the Washington, D.C. delegation that we talked about a few episodes ago, and who had been stopped at Fort Leavenworth awaiting the final removal of their kin. In his meeting with General Crook in 1890, Chatto, one of the most loyal of scouts, gave his version of what had happened. He had been working his farm and sheep when he had been called to Washington, where they spoke good to him, and they told him he could have land and make a living. Then, while being held at Leavenworth, General Miles sent the delegation a letter declaring that Fort Apache was a bad place for Indians, that everyone was down on them, and that Miles wanted to put them on the Washington side of the country where people were good. Then they were given a piece of paper and made to touch the pen to it. This paper supposedly promised the Chiricahua a reservation where they'd be given stock and plenty of room. However, that was not to be. And all that Chatto already owned had been sold in his absence, with only a fraction of that money making its way to him. As he relayed all of this to Crook, he grasped the silver medal that had been gifted him during his time in Washington, D.C. Tearing it from his chest, Chatto demanded, quote, Why did you give me that? To wear in the guardhouse. I thought something good would come to me when they gave me that, but I've been in confinement ever since I have had it. End quote. Which is, sadly, a completely valid point. While all these groups were en route to Florida, there were a couple major decisions that occurred. One of these was that the Chiricahua would remain wards of the War Department instead of being handed to the Interior Department, which technically had jurisdiction over Amerindian affairs. This is an old issue that we've covered before, but here it just decides to raise its ugly head again. The War Department tried to get the Indian Bureau to assume responsibility over the Chiricahua to both find them a reservation and provide for them like they did every other tribe. But the Bureau or the Interior Department either punted on the issue or just flatly refused to take them. Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley says that this may have actually been a blessing in disguise for the Chiricahua, though. The Interior Department had no place to keep the Apache now being shipped east, and it was unlikely that Congress would approve a new reservation for them. The military had forts and barracks that, though never nice places, could be used. Also, the army was not plagued with the corruption that was so endemic to the Indian Bureau, which meant the Apache would actually get supplies earmarked for them. The downside, however, is that it meant the Chiricahua would bear the humiliating label of prisoners of war for nearly three decades. On September 10th, the train carrying Geronimo and his men was suddenly stopped in San Antonio, where they were offloaded and being taken to a holding area until October 22nd. Here, Geronimo and Nietzsche would be questioned by army officers about their understanding of what Miles had promised them. What was happening was that everyone was trying to untangle exactly what Miles had promised the group in Skeleton Canyon. 
Cleveland and Sheridan still wanted to send Geronimo Nietzsche back to Arizona to stand trial for their crimes, while Miles was still dissembling, muddying already muddled waters. It didn't help either that this was the late 1880s, which meant the president and his secretary of war had both gone on long extended trips to the mountains in New York and New Hampshire to get away from hot, muggy Washington, because apparently you could do that in the era before nuclear weapons. Finally, though, Cleveland seems to have come to the conclusion that the surrender had not been unconditional. However, he then made the second major decision, that merely sparing the renegades' lives was conditions enough. So he sent out an order that the women and children would go to Fort Marion to join Chihuahua's people who were already there. Geronimo and his warriors, however, would be sent to Fort Pickens on Santa Rosa Island near Pensacola to serve their time at that installation. This was a violation of what Miles had promised, and Geronimo and Nietzsche both protested vehemently, saying they were supposed to be with their families. But in the end, there was nothing they could do as the women and children with them were put on one train, and they were loaded onto another. But before we leave San Antonio, one last thing to notice. When it became known that Geronimo, the Geronimo, had pulled into the station, a flood of onlookers came to get a glimpse of the infamous raiding devil that had struck terror across the southwest. And this was the start of Geronimo's celebrity, and nearly wherever he went, people would flock to see him. And we'll get more into that celebrity before this episode is over, but during this time in San Antonio, Geronimo asked if the people were there to kill him. However, he wasn't so much worried about himself as he was for his men. Geronimo would relate that Usen had promised him that he would live to be an old man and die a natural death. However, he had no such assurances for his men. But then they were dutifully put back on the train and sent to Florida. Geronimo's captivity at Fort Pickens was comfy enough, and the men busied themselves with various odd jobs at the behest of their army overseers. Meanwhile, though, across the state at Fort Marion, outside of St. Augustine, conditions were much, much worse. The fort, which dated way back to 1695, was crumbling and too small to hold the 500-plus Chiricahua being stuffed into it as of September 20th. And within seven months, it was positively ridden with disease, and more than 360 of the Chiricahua needed medical attention for malaria, dysentery, bronchitis, and worst of all, tuberculosis. That latter disease would be a scourge of the Chiricahua for years, claiming 21 lives in the first year alone. But it would wreak its worst effects among the Apache youth. Speaking of, the Chiricahua would soon find themselves separated from their children. It had been decided that they needed to be sent away to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, where they would be quote-unquote civilized. Between November 1886 and April 1887, more than 100 children would be removed from their families. All my sources speak of the Chiricahua's impotence to stop this forced seizure, they were already prisoners of war, surrounded by soldiers. What could they do? But the school was worse in one other way. 
it was a veritable petri dish for the tuberculosis that was running rampant through the population. By the summer of 1889, less than three years later, 25 of the original 106 students sent to the school had died from what was then called consumption. Now, this is where things sort of get better, and what I alluded to in episode 109. Early in 1887, Captain John Burke had made contact with Herbert Welsh, secretary of the Indian Rights Association in Philadelphia. Welsh was able to tour Fort Marion and wrote a bombshell report about the deplorable conditions the Apache were kept in and the lack of proper support from the government and the distressing lack of a long-term plan for what to do with the Apache. But even worse, he called out the government for its outright betrayal of the Chiricahua men who had served so faithfully as scouts. At Fort Marion, there were 65 men who had served as scouts during the last two years of the conflict, as well as 284 women and children who were their families. Cleveland's administration remained unrepentant about locking up all the Chiricahua and using the old can't-tell-who-is-friend-and-foe argument, but Welsh's report did stir up enough of an outcry that other arrangements were sought out. This is where, and once again we talked about this in episode 109, Captain Burke scouted the abandoned army barracks at Mount Vernon, Alabama, as a replacement solution. I will note that, though he thought it was an improvement, Burke wasn't wild about the place, sitting roughly 30 miles north of Montgomery. It had little arable lands, and was surrounded by sand, swamps, and pine barrens. The War Department ran with this idea, however, and on April 27, 1887, 353 Chiricahua were put on a train heading toward Alabama. Wait, you say, didn't you tell us that there were more than 500 Chiricahua stuffed into Fort Marion? Well, yes I did, and at the time, yes there was. But 106 of those were now up at Carlisle, and in what was a punch in the gut, 44 of those had been taken the day before their families were moved to Alabama. The day before! 31 were the families of Geronimo and those imprisoned at Fort Pickens, and after lobbying constantly, they were finally allowed to join their husbands and fathers. As for the rest, well, let's just euphemistically say that they would never leave Fort Marion. A year later, in May 1888, Geronimo and the rest at Fort Pickens would be moved on to Mount Vernon as well as their continual pleas for the good land Miles had promised them finally reached someone who listened. Nietzsche in particular would say, quote, We are tired of salt water and sand. End quote. Still, though, disease haunted everyone in Alabama, as tuberculosis, which had started in Florida, ravaged the Chiricahua. Between leaving Arizona in September 1886, and the beginning of October 1894, the Chiricahua lost 280 people to the disease. And just for a historical footnote, the army doctor on scene at Mount Vernon was the man who would one day link mosquitoes to yellow fever and is the eponym for the military's medical center, Dr. Walter Reed. During his time treating the Apache at Mount Vernon, 
Reed would pen a scathing letter about the unhealthy conditions and declared that a move was needed. Still, the War Department had nothing but debates about a place for a suitable reservation. Endless investigations about conditions at Mount Vernon happened, including one by then-Captain Marion Moss, who had led the scouts in early 1886 following Crawford's death at the Devil's Backbone. Finally, it was decided to remove the Chiricahua to Fort Sill in the Indian territories that are today in Oklahoma. Now, there were some fun political shenanigans going on here, including General Miles himself, to get a bill through Congress that would supersede the one banning the Apache from being able to settle in the Indian territories, but that's going too much into the weeds for our purposes. On October 4th, 1894, the survivors of eight horrendous years in Florida and Alabama reached Oklahoma. They were surrounded by Comanches and Kiowas, and at first a language barrier was solidly in place between all the tribes. Their new neighbors tried to communicate in the sign language common among the Plains Amerindians, but it was unknown to the Apache. And I just have to say, how cool is it that the Plains Amerindians had a common sign language they used as a lingua franca? That's definitely something I'm going to be reading up on. In a sign of the times, this language barrier was finally breached when all the tribes produced youth that had been schooled at Carlisle and could all communicate in English. Life would improve drastically for the Chiricahua in Oklahoma, where they were better suited for the climate and they could try again to farm and raise herds. But still, many of the older generation yearned to return home to the Southwest. They also still bore that horrible title of prisoners of war. In 1911, a full 25 years after Geronimo's surrender, Benedict Jose would ask, quote, Don't we have any rights in the United States at all? What is the trouble? Are we human beings in the United States? What are we? We are not Canadians or Africans, and we are not from Europe. But we are natives of the United States. Why can't the government fix us upright, be right for us, and give us what we ask for? End quote. Even as he was asking those heartfelt questions, things were starting to move. Discussions at the Mescalero Apache Reservation in New Mexico revealed that the Mescalero and Lippin Apache would welcome the Chiricahua to join them. So on April 4th, 1913, after 27 years of being prisoners of war, the majority of the remaining Chiricahua, some 163 people under Nietzsche, Chato, and other prominent leaders, arrived in New Mexico. The remaining 78 Chiricahua chose to stay in Oklahoma, where their descendants remain to this day. That was a necessary, all-too-brief recounting of the history of the Chiricahua post-1886. And now I want to give an even more all-too-brief recounting of a different group. Because even though the majority of the tribe surrendered, there were still just a few who decided to go out swinging. And some with great success, I have to say. Well, the first, not so much. And that was Mongus. You might have been wondering where Mongus has been, since he had been instrumental in the breakout with Geronimo from Turkey Creek in 1885. 
Well, the answer is that he had actually broken off from the rest in December 1885 and had subsisted with just a few people around him. Eventually, this son of Mangus Colorados and the less than 10 people who were with him would stealthily make their way from Mexico toward Fort Apache, hoping to blend in and disappear, but no such luck. He and his followers were rounded up in October 1886 and shipped to Florida to work alongside Geronimo. He would move, along with everyone else, first to Mount Vernon and then to Fort Sill, where he would eventually marry a daughter of Victorio and have six children. Mongus died in 1901 at the age of 55. Next up are two men named Atelnitsa and Natkulbaye. I've actually mentioned them in the intro to our last episode. They were the men, along with three women and a teenager, who ran off in the night right after Geronimo surrendered. These would continue their traditional way of life until 1896, when Altenitsa was killed in northern Sonora by pursuing American troops, and Nat Kobaye died sometime around 1900. Although Edwin R. Sweeney says it's possible that the descendants of these two men managed to live as free Apache in the Sierra Madres into the 1920s or even 1930s. But the winner of the holdout prize might be a man named Masai. At Jeheni, Masai had been rounded up like the rest at Fort Apache and put on a train to go to Florida. But somewhere along the way, some sources say New Mexico, others in Missouri, he managed to jump from the train and escape. He then made it back to Arizona where he would be like this lone wolf, preying on white eyes and Amerindians alike, and always managing to slip away from danger or capture. He even took a Mescalero Apache woman to be his wife and had a family. And his final fate is kind of uncertain, though by one account he died in 1906 after being ambushed by some cowboys in New Mexico. And since we are here, I guess we best give an accounting of all our main players that had such huge roles in the Apache Wars. First up would be Nietzsche, the son of Cochise the Great and Terrible, and companion to Geronimo during the rebellion and imprisonment. As he aged, his stature among his people grew, and he had enormous influence during the latter years at Fort Sill. He was one of those that moved to the Mescalero Reservation in New Mexico in 1913, and lived there with his remaining family until his death in 1921 at the age of 65. The warrior Chihuahua, who went a little berserk and even tried to kill Geronimo at one point, would live at Fort Sill, leading one of the Chiricahua villages until his death in 1901 at the age of 79. His descendants would eventually migrate to the Mescalero Reservation as well. Chato, who went from a notable warrior and raider to the most loyal of scouts, lived through the whole experience at Fort Marion, Mount Vernon, and Fort Sill. He led another one of the Chiricahua villages, though his fellow Apache always did look at him a little askew because he had been so eager to aid the army. His family life was not too happy, as he had lost one family in Mexico that the U.S. government was always just on the verge of trying to get back. Spoiler, they never would. One wife left him for someone else. A son died at Carlisle, while he lost many many more immediate family members at Fort Sill. 
He would also move to New Mexico, where he died in a car crash in 1934 at the age of 80. Which, I have to say, is not how one pictures an Apache warrior dying. Nana, who was always presented as being the old man of the Chiricahua during the fighting years, died at Fort Sill in 1896 at the advanced age of 96. Martina and Cayeta, the two scouts who persuaded Geronimo to meet with Gatewood, had been deported along with everyone else, but ended up heading a Chiricahua village at Fort Sill together before moving to the Muscalero Reservation. Cayeta would die in 1934 at the age of 78, and we don't have a death date for Martina, but we do know that he was interviewed about his life sometime in the 1930s. Then there's Kaitane, the troublemaking young man who was sent to Alcatraz and was then released by Crook for his meeting with Geronimo in March 1886, and he would live as a prisoner of war and marry twice. He too moved to New Mexico in 1913 and would die in 1918 at the age of 57. Then there's the other side of the equation. General Philip Sheridan, the commanding general of the U.S. Army and long an advocate of removing the Chiricahua from Arizona and sweeping them under a rug somewhere, would suffer a heart attack in May 1888, the first of a series that would ultimately kill him that August. And I'm trying really hard to feel sympathetic for him, but right now it's an uphill task. We already covered the last years of General Crook, so let's turn to General Nelson A. Miles. He would be made a major general in April 1890, and would be named the last commanding general of the U.S. Army in 1895, before that office was eventually abolished. And he would feud with President Teddy Roosevelt over U.S. policy in Cuba and the Philippines, and so when he retired in 1903 at the age of 64, the president would pointedly not attend his retirement ceremony. On May 16, 1925, Miles took his grandchildren to the Barnum and Bailey Circus. When the band struck up the Star-Spangled Banner, he rose and saluted. But when the song finished, he slumped down in his chair, dead from a heart attack. I don't know why, but there's almost something kind of funny about that. Captain Henry Lawton, the man that had vowed to bring Geronimo in dead or alive, and eventually did, would fight in both the Spanish-American War and in the Philippines, eventually achieving the rank of general. However, on December 18, 1899, he was shot and became the only U.S. general to die in the Philippines insurrection. Assistant Surgeon Leonard Wood, who had aided Lawton, finally achieved his goal of switching from the medical service to command. And he would actually become a colonel in the famous Rough Riders Cavalry Unit during the Spanish-American War, and served in the Philippines as well. Wood would be promoted to Brigadier General and served as Army Chief of Staff from 1910 to 1914. And he then ran unsuccessfully to get the Republican presidential nomination in 1920, and he died in 1927. The real loser here, though, is Captain Charles Gatewood, the man who successfully got Geronimo to finally surrender, even though he didn't want to be anywhere near that mess. He got his cushy spot on Miles' staff that he wanted, but would soon alienate Miles the same way he had Crook, 
In his later years, Miles would go out of his way to downplay Gatewood's contributions to the Geronimo campaign. After moving to a regiment in Wyoming, Gatewood would be seriously injured in a gunpowder explosion, and in 1892, he was denied a promotion to captain, despite having the seniority, because of his ill health. He would die on May 20th, 1896, from a malignant tumor on his liver. Then there's Tom Jeffords, the old friend of Cochise, who had done so much to try and bridge the gap between the Americans and the Chiricahua. He became something of a hermit, retiring with his hounds to his private ranch, called Owl's Head, that was roughly 35 miles north of Tucson. He never married, and most people in his time despised him for his work with the Apache. He died in 1914, a year after being interviewed by Robert Forbes, a great chronicler of Arizona history. And what about the one person who started this whole saga? What about Mickey Free? I didn't mention this at the time, but the former kidnapped boy turned Apache turned Army Scout had gone with Chattel and the rest to Washington, D.C. and had seen them off to Fort Marion before returning to Arizona. He rejoined the scouts and served with them until retiring in 1893. After the death of his wife in 1900, Mickey Free was left with the little hut along the east fork of the White River, where he tended vegetables. The boy who started the longest conflict in U.S. military history died in anonymity sometime in 1914. No one at the time really noticed. Now, as we wind up what has become a jumbo episode, I'm going to end where I began, with the later life and career of Geronimo. I mentioned much earlier in this episode that people had flocked to see the Geronimo when his train was stopped in San Antonio. That's something that would never let up over the rest of his life, as curious onlookers would also come to see this imposing figure they had read about. And Geronimo, who became quite the capitalist, realized that if he put his name on things, people would buy it. From walking sticks to bows, the public gobbled up Geronimo originals. The dirty secret being, of course, that others made most of these things and Geronimo just signed them. And starting with the Trans-Mississippi International Exhibition in 1895, Geronimo would become a traveling attraction. He would appear at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York in 1901, though his appearance was overshadowed by the assassination of President William McKinley at the same event. The next major appearance was at the Louisiana Purchase Exposition held in St. Louis in 1904, and this was a big one mainly because it led to what might be the biggest appearance of his quote-unquote career. Because Theodore Roosevelt, who won re-election in 1904, decided to showcase Amerindians in his inaugural parade. Geronimo was one of six leading Amerindians who rode in that parade. Now, a funny aside to this is that none other than the son of John Clum, one-time Indian agent at San Carlos who had once captured Geronimo himself, was next to the president on the stand and asked why on earth T.R. had picked Geronimo. He is the greatest single-handed murderer in American history, the younger Clum is reported to have said. And President Roosevelt simply replied, quote, 
I wanted to give the people a good show. End quote. And what we should remember that it was just that. A show. In the days after the inauguration, Geronimo would meet with Roosevelt in private and begged for his people to be free, both from their imprisonment and to be able to return to Arizona. And Roosevelt turned him down. The summer after returning from Washington, D.C., Geronimo embarked on another project with S.M. Barrett, a local school superintendent who had helped translate Spanish to English for the old renegade the result of which would be Geronimo's autobiography, which you may have noticed I have quoted only sparingly. And there are several reasons for that. First and foremost, it's because Barrett only got permission to sit down with Geronimo if the War Department got full review of what was published. So in some cases, passages were struck before the book reached audiences, and in other cases, Barrett softened the text to avoid censorship. Either way, what we do have is a little watered down. Secondly, Geronimo was telling things in the Apache tradition, so there's a lot of cultural understanding that readers need to have to get a full grasp of what he is saying. He also emphasized what events had occurred, but any attempts to plot these on the white man's calendar system was a dismal failure, leading to a truly unorganized chronology. For example, this is why biographer Robert M. Utley puts Geronimo's birth year as 1823, matching it better with other known events, while others, basing it more on the autobiography, say he was born in 1829. Third, Barrett was working through an Apache translator, the son of Hua, actually, so there are still all the perils of going through the translation process. And finally, Geronimo was past 80 at this point, if you believe Utley, So we are dealing with a fading memory of an old man. But when Geronimo talks about his culture, his youth, his family, and his true feelings about the Mexicans or the army or the people he interacted with, the biography does have some value. Just take everything with a grain of salt, please. Getting back around to where we started, despite his growing fame, Geronimo would not live to see any of the Chiricahua return to the Southwest. He would die on that cold February morning in 1909, still listed as a prisoner of war in Oklahoma. Depending on who you ask, he was either 79 or 86 years old, the latter being Utley's calculation and the one I personally agree with. So, that's that. We have come to the true end of the Apache Wars, with the fates of all our main actors now revealed. This has been an incredibly long journey for all of us. As I've said several times now, we started the ball rolling on the Apache Wars while the episode count was in the 30s, and here we are wrapping it up some 80 plus episodes later. I went back and found that since April of this year, 2022, every episode has been focusing on this major plot point, which is a good way of transitioning to my next plot point. I need to take a week off. I've been so focused on the Apache Wars that I've neglected some of my other books and need to realign myself with what else was happening in Arizona at the time. Also, this is a good time to mention that my wife and I are actually expecting our first child mid-November, so I need to figure out how to keep releasing quality episodes while simultaneously learning how to take care of a tiny human. 
the capitalist in me is also saying that if you feel some pangs of sympathy for me, this might be a good time to take advantage of that now working donate button on the website, azhistorypodcast.com. Cough, cough. To recap, no new episode on October 9th, but join me on October 16th as we move forward to see what the future of Arizona has in store for us next. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to the end of the Apache Wars on AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.